Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McWibby. I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me today. This week on the podcast, I'm very excited to welcome Lily Barron. Lily is a program associate at the ACLU of Nevada and a local activist. We had a great conversation about activism in general. There's been a lot of activity in Reno the last couple of years, and our activist community has been present at protests after the murder of George Floyd, the Stop the Sweeps protests last year, a lot of response from the activist community around the Jacobs and Neon Line development, and it was great to have Lily on the show to talk about activism, what it is, what is being done in the Reno area, what works and what doesn't. Really, really great conversation, and I'm so glad to include some of the voices of our activist community on this podcast, we talk a lot about issues that are happening in Reno, and some of the people at the forefront of those conversations are our local activists. So I was very grateful that Lily took the time to come chat with me about it. This week's episode is brought to you by DJ Trivia Nevada. As you know, I host trivia at several local venues. I hope that you'll come play sometime. We have venues all around town, in every neighborhood, Sunday through Thursday, several games every night. There's probably one in your neighborhood. Check out DJTriviaNevada.com for the full list of locations. Follow us on social media. That's DJ Trivia Nevada on Facebook or Instagram. And you can see where to play. It's a lot of fun. It's always free to play. There's prizes for the top teams. Go find a venue near you. Check out DJTriviaNevada.com for all the locations. This week's episode is also brought to you by This Is Reno. This Is Reno is my favorite local news source. Basically, if you want to know what's going on in town, I highly recommend you follow This Is Reno. On social media, they're on Facebook, Instagram. You can also subscribe to their email newsletter and get those headlines in your email box. That's what I do. Every day I get to see the headlines and read about what's going on in town. That's thisisreno.com. Hey, do you have plans on March 10th? Because if you don't, I've got a great opportunity for you. Come celebrate the one-year anniversary of Renoites with me. Thursday, March 10th, I'm throwing a little anniversary party for the podcast at the Brewer's Cabinet Production Facility from 5 to 7, followed by a trivia game with DJ Trivia Nevada, hosted by myself and the wonderful Vicki Musney from 7 to 9. You can find the link to that in the show notes or on my social media. That's at Renoites on Facebook and Instagram. It's going to be a ton of fun. I'm really excited to see listeners, guests, former guests, and celebrate one year of Renoites. It's been a really great project, a really fun thing for me to do this last year, creating these conversations and sharing them with people. And I would love to see a lot of people come celebrate with me. Again, that's March 10th from 5 to 7, followed by trivia from 7 to 9 at the Brewer's Cabinet Production Facility. And you can find all the details on Renoites on Facebook or Instagram. And now this week's guest, Lily Barron. Lily Barron, thank you so much for coming on Renoites. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you because I've done a lot of episodes around issues in Reno that affect how our city's growing, how it's changing. And a big part of those conversations is very often the the activist community, or uh, I hear it described as like homeless advocates, this kind of, yes. you know, this the group advocates. of people. Yes, the advocates. So <laughs> We've been I've, called. Yes, I'm excited to have someone on the show who is actively involved in that whole part of Reno and what's happening here and learning kind of from your perspective what some of those things look like, what some of those things mean, because I want to be inclusive of those voices too. Instead of just talking about the homeless advocates, I want to talk to the advocates. So yeah. I think a, a good place to start is with kind of these ideas of labels and what 
being an activist means. One of the things that I've noticed a couple times. Um, so I worked on the the Pete Buttigieg campaign, and mm-hmm. one of my friends on a Facebook comment or something said, "Oh yeah, my friend Connor's an activist," and I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa!" Like I'm working on a political <laughs> campaign that does not make right. me an activist. Like I rejected that label because there's things that are yeah. associated with activism that I don't want to claim that as part of my identity or what I'm doing. And then I've also gotten that with journalism too. Like I'm not a journalist. I'm just a guy having conversations. Like a journalist has a certain kind of uh, expectation or requirement. So those kind of things. So right. basically what is, what is activism? What is it to be an activist? And I guess the best place to start is, are you an activist? I didn't even ask you. I just kind of like threw that label on you. Yeah. Are you an activist? What does that mean? I, I don't know. I guess, yeah, the label gets thrown upon you. It's like anyone who's promoting um, like political or social change, basically. So I guess your friend wouldn't be wrong saying that campaign work is, you know, a form of activism. But yeah, it's basically grumpy people who put actions behind their grumpiness or dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. What type of actions, I guess, is part of the question, too, is because there's also this conversation about like performative activism and stuff like that. So what do you what do you define as like actual activism versus maybe not real activism? Is there a line or is it like a spectrum? Yeah, I would say I think almost I like everything is a spectrum, but I would think that, um, yes, definitely activism is a spectrum where people enter it where they are. And it's usually the base is usually people who are directly impacted. So wherever you find a group of people that are disenfranchised or something like that, you are going to find activists trying to promote the change of those conditions. And then we talked about the advocacy. So that's a big part of it, too, is kind of standing up for for other groups as well. It's not just about being Mm -hmm. an activist for your own self or your own cause. But there's this kind of speaking up for people who can't speak up or don't have the resources or the ability to kind of advocate for themselves. Totally. And we and we see it a lot just with marginalized groups are pigeonholed in a lot of ways. Like when we, we have a government that makes you rely on their systems, people um, might, you know, might not get access to a lot of the things they need to survive if they speak up. So it's really important that when you're in a position like I'm in where I'm able to both speak up and be directly impacted that you use that power. However, we have talked about before that, you know, there's a weird air of shame and like a tallying of work that I've noticed people take like an inventory of of work or where they are. And it makes me sad because I don't feel like everyone, you know, everyone doesn't have to do everything as intensely as everyone else. Some people's situations and lifestyles allow them to participate more than others. And it's not, there's no shame in not doing a degree of activism as more more or less than another person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is something that I notice a lot and have kind of had some concern about for myself generally about getting involved in activist type spaces is this fear of judgment that you're not doing it right or you're not doing it enough and I'm trying to do the right thing and then you turn around and find out oh no, actually that's the wrong thing or that's not real activism right. or that's perform and it's like, well Dang, yeah. I just I just invested all of this kind of like passion and, and energy in, in doing something that I thought was the right thing to do and, and caring about the thing I thought was the right thing. And then someone who's a like, quote unquote, real activist or someone who's more involved or more, I mean, honestly, just more judgmental about those things steps in and says, actually, 
Like, yeah, you're 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 bad and you're doing it wrong. So I'm like, oh, well, shoot. Well, that makes me not want to do it at all. Right. So have you seen that? It's a total it's a real concern. Yeah, I've been there. You know, (laughs) I mean, there are times where I I won't lie that on the eighth day of the stop the sweeps protest, I wasn't a little bit like, can somebody else take the wheel for Mm -hmm. a second? Like we're freaking tired, you know, and and you do get in that space and that's that's on you. You know, that's the kind of thing that I that I learned is like that is totally on you. You accepted a responsibility or a position that has now propelled you into a place you volunteered to be in. Mm -hmm. And it is your job to make it appealing. It's not anyone else's fault if they don't want to do it there are other things so it's important to understand like in in movement work that there's um there's a place for everybody and there has to be a place for everybody because what we're trying to change is the way in which we participate in in society so we're trying to shift from individualism which americans are very very married to um to collective care and care doesn't always mean like everyone gets flowers and a hug at the end care can also mean saying hey i noticed you're doing this and it's super problematic or hey you promised to do this thing and you're not doing it there is a lot of accountability in the space um and within the groups and and everything like that and those those conversations are not easy mm-hmm. but those conversations are what we're asking for if we want what we are saying we want in the future you know so if i'm saying i want restorative justice that means when i am pissed off at someone because they didn't pull their weight in something else it's my job to confront it and figure out how to move forward instead of just say no that person's out of the group or like Mm -hmm. they can't help the thing, you know, like we can't act in a carceral way when we want decarceration. Right. Like how do you navigate that line or those conversations or those dynamics to make sure that you are holding people accountable, that you are calling out the things that are not helpful, but still maintaining kind of a, a welcoming atmosphere because people do, you know, in our current system, our current society have the ability to opt out of basically whatever they want to everything you can opt out of life right you can just put on that vr thing and just like see ya i mean i want to do it sometimes there's no shame in wanting to escape and we all do Mm -hmm. i think that one of the ways to do that is to inventory yourself and your rest and like where you are at because if you are in a a good spot and you are rested and taking care of yourself you're able to take care of your community and your fellow activists or whatever people that you're working with in a better way. But when something does go awry, I think that right now we have a a good rhythm where it's like you will consult an outside person outside of that conflict that, you know, is has a relationship with the both parties. And then you come together and have the difficult conversation. One of the issues though, is that then you expect that in all of the aspects of your life where like that's not set up yet for every for everything right, yeah. you know like that's not so that that is a thing that is difficult to navigate i think where you're used to communication in a really direct and vulnerable spot when you're doing this kind of work because you're you're seeing things and you're taking risks together that they're bonding experiences too that when you try to like replicate that in your regular relationships it, you seem a little bit we're a little further ahead than than everyone else in this difficult um, scenario. It seems like a lot of what needs to be done or is being done, I guess, is shifting the cultural norms around some of this communication. 
but it feels like sometimes there's this expectation like, oh, well, I know this way of communication. I know these this terminology around accountability. I have these ways of talking that work for me and my community. How come you just don't get it yet? And I think part of the challenge is introducing people in a way that is effective to how this language works, how this kind of communication works and the, and the goals for it. Yes. And also, I think it's important to say that the level of involvement almost always directly connects to your proximity to privilege, mm-hmm. right? So somebody who is way over here, it is, a, you know, let's say they're like a cis pet white male and uh, with a, a fine amount of money and a good education and all of the things, they speak several languages or have a trade or whatever, it's going to be a much uglier more vulnerable, difficult journey for that person to get from that spot to like, I should go out and help unhoused trans black women, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) like that, that journey is very far. That's probably, you probably don't have many friends that look like that or that are like, you know, that are in the same socioeconomic stand and all of those things. And you have to tear down parts of yourself to get to that compassion level sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not to say that you have to like sell all of your stuff and be a monk to help people. It's just to say that you do have to do some difficult internal work to recognize where you stand and why it's important that you use where you stand to speak up for other folks and to not participate in like the rat race. I'm reading a book right now that I really love. And she talks about the ladder, like we're all on the ladder and we're all trying to climb up, up the ladder and everybody is starts in a different place in the ladder, you know, like, do, you know, are you fat or skinny? Are you beautiful? Are you like, by traditional standards? Are you straight? Are you gay? Are you whatever rich or poor? And then we're all trying to get as high as we can in the ladder while stepping on other people. But what we really need to combat the systems that oppress all of us is to divest from the ladder entirely. Mm-hmm. There is, there does not have to be a ladder, right? And that, that's kind of like the, a better way of explaining what anarchism is when it's like, it's the equalizer of everyone in a way that it's like, you're no better because you are differently abled or differently positioned than anyone else. And everyone has something to contribute. And that's why in those movement spaces, that's already being practiced. So it's really hard to go in and out of those spaces because you've already equalized and you are going to be called out if you're like doing some weird ableism or doing some weird like pocket sexism or racism or whatever. Like you're going to be called to the table no matter what in those spaces because there is no ladder in that space. Mm -hmm. But when you're, you know, outside of the ladder, if we think about like right now, like the Joe Rogan thing, like he's at a point in the ladder where it's like he he can't leave the ladder or else he has to be like everyone else, which would mean accountability and like all sorts of ugly things. And it will be very hard and he will cry. He'll probably throw <laughs> up, you know, like <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen people like people reach this state of mind in transcendental meditation and like ayahuasca retreats, like there's, there are ways that people get there faster. Um, and it's kind of just like a, achieving that great vulnerability where you realize like you're not shit and neither is anyone else. Mm-hmm. Do you think that some of those ideas around hierarchy and the ladder and these like levels of privilege and stuff, like capitalistic thinking about competitiveness, do those 
have a risk of showing themselves in activist spaces too? It's so internalized, a lot of these ideas. Did they show up in activist spaces too? And is that part of what's addressed while you're working on these things? Totally, totally. And it's, it's so hard because we are still like at the end of the day, we... So for instance, like we'll raise money for stuff, but we don't want to do a nonprofit. Cool. Who's going to pay the taxes at the end? It's like what we're not doing is going to tax jail because we wanted to buy tents for people or whatever. So like those kinds of things, you commit to other struggles. It's just weighing out the pros and cons of of those things, right? Like I'm not going to shop on Amazon, but sometimes you can only find the thing that you need to help the cause that you're doing on Amazon or whatever. And it's like this, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. No one can do it. No one is able to completely divest from it right now. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is start building the the alternatives. And we can, they can live together until we don't need the others anymore. And I think that's like what we saw during the pandemic that was so nice was that we didn't see the government come in and swoop in and, and help everybody. We saw our neighbors coming in and, and swooping in and helping everybody. And we defaulted to exactly what it is that we need to keep doing. You know, we need to completely continue to build our communities and our local food systems and our local um, safety. I do a lot of imagining about community policing and alternatives to mental health care and and other care systems like that. That's very scary. Like right now, if I broke my leg, I would have to go to the hospital. No one in my house is trained to fix a broken leg. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that there aren't medic trainings for people to learn how to do that kind of stuff and to learn how to do stitches and to learn, you know, it's investing our time into Um, those alternatives that will end up helping us in the end. And um, the only thing that is guaranteed in a, in a capitalist society like this is that it will fail. It's, it's failing now. There's no arguing about it, whether you like it or not, it's not working. Mm -hmm. It can either crash and burn and we all just are flailing in the wind or we can have some, a little bit set up to sustain us through the transition. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about kind of the anarchism and this, um, kind of parallel systems of support and power and how one transitions into the other, that kind of idea. Another question, though, before I get to that, around the activism piece and kind of how to participate, I brought it up briefly about online activism and social media and stuff. And I think that's where a lot of people have started to get a lot of their understanding of activist movements, a lot of their language around activism. But then again, there's been a lot of this kind of pushback about performative activism. And I think the big example from... Uh, I guess it was a, a couple years ago now, was the black square on Instagram thing, ah. which which is just <laughs> this, this prime example of, of doing effectively nothing, but really signaling like, hey, I'm one of the good people. Hey, I'm doing, I'm doing the thing that I have been directed to or that I'm supposed to do. But I do think there is actual people who are communicating really well on social media and they're mm-hmm. getting ideas out here. I know we follow some of the same people on Instagram, that are, you know, sharing ideas that are really helpful. Mm-hmm. Where do you fit the kind of like social media and communication piece into the activism world? Active is the functional word there. It's doing something, but communicating yeah. is a thing. So kind of where do you see social media and communication and maybe making things understandable to different audiences? Some people are not going to get the message from a particular message or in certain language, but they might understand it better from someone else. So there's probably a role to play in being kind of a translator of these messages to 
your own particular social circle or crowd or whatever. Can you just talk a little bit about the messaging and communication around activist movements? Yeah, well, let's we'll start with the the performative activism, like the um, like the black square thing. That is just a matter of just re- like resourcing and 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 source checking, right? So you look at where it's coming from. Who exactly decided this? Who asked for it? And then if you can't find who asked for it, chances are no one did. Something like, dude, now I mean it's gone too far now, but I have a good friend who is a black man in Reno. He's one of the members of the Washoe, one of the board members of the Washoe Black Caucus. And he really likes to shine a light and correct when people say BIPOC, the Black Indigenous People of Color um, acronym. Because that acronym, if you look it up, was invented by a white woman on Twitter with like 30 followers. And then everyone thought it was a good idea. And like, now we all have to be this one thing. And like, none of us, there was no survey. No one was asked. We just are that now. Mm -hmm. Instead of just separating, you know, because all of these groups in the BIPOC have different struggles and backgrounds and um, ways of communicating and everything like that. So it's important to check the source from which the thing is coming from. And then just ask yourself if you can't find the source, first of all, why can't I find the source? Secondly, what is it tangibly doing? Mm -hmm. Is there a tangible result from the black square? For me, the only tangible result was I couldn't tell who any of my friends were because they all had the same, (laughs) the same profile picture and it was annoying. (laughs) So that was a tangible result, but like it didn't make me feel any safer. Right. Mm -hmm. I will say, though, however, like, which is weird, the words do matter. Like, when I'm in an area, you know, we were driving in, like, northern California towards towards the ocean. And we were, like, in this tiny little town, like, by Bodega Bay. And, like, they have all of these, like, Black Lives Matter signs in their windows. That is comforting. I actually Mm -hmm. do feel a little, like, I feel like I can get out of the car and there's not going to be any problems. Where in the, you know, on the opposite side, if I'm seeing, like, I'm driving through Dayton or whatever, and there's like Confederate flags. Also hear that message loud and clear. So like those things aren't performative, but they are instructive. And I understand, I feel a different way when I look at those images. The black square thing is another, another mm-hmm. thing. But there's also when we talk about like what, what role does like social media play or anything like that, there's some different schools of thought. I rely heavily on social media because I rely heavily on knowing that a lot of people are lazy and that's okay. Sometimes spreading the message is more important than the method of which you're spreading it. And sometimes you have to, you can, there's only so many hours in a day, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And you could do a lot, a lot with social media and especially organizing and showing things. Like, I don't know where we would be if we didn't have, these officer involved shooting videos. Everyone can, you know, speculate and make up all of these stories until, you know, until we're filming them and broadcasting them at these, this rapid rate that we're able mm-hmm. to. However, there is another school of thought, which I'm really trying to, I'm trying to invest in and like figure out how, how to get there, um, which comes from the NAP ministry, which I love that person. If you've ever, uh, if you're familiar with their work, you know, the development of human relationships is slow and it's important to make those connections slowly because that is part of honoring yourself and that connection with the other person 
such as like if you're you're finding somebody on a dating app versus getting to know someone organically in another way. It will maybe take a little longer to get to where you want to be, but it will be safer and more real. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to be said for both. So um, that's why things like gardening together or going, you know, going to on a mutual aid trip or something like that is like those creating those connections and those bonding experiences build a community way stronger than just a social media community. Mm -hmm. That being said, we have called it internet panhandling when we're trying to raise money for like, for instance, like the motel program or anything like that. For some reason, our friends, I would venture to say, feel much safer donating to us on the internet and probably donate at a much more rapid rate through social media platforms than they do hand people cash that are asking for the exact same mm-hmm. thing on the side of the road. You know, so that's where we're using our privilege of being in a place where it's like not as yucky to ask for money when you're in a certain point of privilege than it is when you're completely down and out and it's obvious. Then you have all of the stigma around it where people are like, well, are you going to spend it on drugs? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to spend it on whatever, you know, which is wrong, but it doesn't mean that we can't use that to, to do right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like using the tools that we have to accomplish the goals that we have, even if those tools are imperfect or even if they're sometimes used in a, a way that's not helpful, if they are a tool that works for the need at the moment, then I understand, like, use the tools that you've got, right? Yeah. I I really like the point you made about the slower growth of relationships, too, because one of my concerns with social media and, like, the way that our technology works is I don't think humans are adapted for the kind of, like, rapid change and knowing thousands of people. I think we are built to live in community with a smaller number of people who we know more closely, but everything is so fast and so big now that I feel very disconnected from the idea of, like, what it means to just be like a normal human. I don't think any of us know what it is to be a human the way that we're supposed to, right? No. And it's, yeah, it's incredibly overwhelming. Like for me, I don't know. I got, I'm not even sure how, how this happened, but like the volume of people that now I am like friends with on social media or whatever has increased to a point where it is super uncomfortable when I go out and people are like, Oh, Hey Lily. (laughs) Because first of all, we don't, not a lot of people look like me here, not the case many other places, but I like have this panic moment (laughs) because that is not the case for most of the people that I'm running into. And I don't want to feel like I don't value that person's uh, um, attention or their greeting or their praise, but I feel like I met people and had so many conversations in such a short amount of time. And then when I see them, I can only see half of their face and it's like loud and it's whatever. I'm just very, it's like overstimulating and you're completely desensitized from those connections. Cause it's like those people know you in a way and you're like, what do I know about you? Mm-hmm. Like, how am I going to tether? Like, how did I meet you? What exactly are you even talking about when you're like, thanks for doing the things you do. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> I picked up some dog poop that wasn't mine this morning. Did you see that? Like, is that what you're talking about? I don't know. Yeah, it it is unnatural. And totally, I don't think um, anyone is really expecting, like, what is it going to be like after we make all of these internet friends Mm -hmm. for two years when we go back out into the open and it's like, oh my God, you're all real people. Mm -hmm. How will I ever make lasting connections with all of these people? Yeah, well, I mean, the scary thing is it all feels kind of like, there's no off ramp. There's no U-turn. There's no slowing down on any of this technology no. stuff. So we're kind of trapped in like, if this is the new world that we live in, 
Like, how do we adapt to it? Can we adapt to it? And that, those are all really scary ideas that I think we're just not really, we haven't really fully grappled with or even know how to. Yeah, I don't know. I have, um, I've seen some things that I like, like people um, just saying like at the bottom of their email tags, like, I don't know about you, but I'm super fatigued. With all of the communication, I will get back to you as soon as possible. Please do not bump this mm-hmm. message. <laughs> I'm just like, woo. Yeah. Like, I guess I could do that. But that's, I mean, it's a nice, honest way of of communicating. And it is, again, like coming back to the honest conversation. Like, are you actually able to communicate with so many people so quickly? Because everybody wants to be responded to right away. Mm-hmm. You know, also, you can see when the person saw the thing. <laughs> just the worst because i'll see it and then like heaven forbid you think about how you're going to respond for five minutes mm-hmm. and then put your phone down and go do something else yeah then you're like the worst person oh right? yeah you're the terrible. whole notion of being like left on red which is like a new thing for yeah. like that someone heard something you said and they didn't respond immediately and that is something that is offensive or mean or whatever it feels so invasive to me that it's like your time is yeah. is demanded right now. Your attention is demanded right now from anyone who talks to you, which is just not a sustainable way of having friendships and relationships and communication. In my opinion, right. I just don't think it's, it's not doable. No, it's, it's totally not sustainable. And, and we, we do it to ourselves too. Like I will, I have like a little list and I like write all the things that I like all the people that I'm supposed to respond to or whatever, go through my phone. Like last night I had to delete 35 like unread text messages or whatever and i'm like i'm a monster like why am i doing this to people i hate it when somebody does this to me if it's a close friend or somebody that i'm dating like i am the worst if you do not respond to me like oh my god i'm the worst person and yet at the same time like i'm on an interview like yeah that's not natural we (laughs) should never we should never do that so like just to be abundantly clear i am also like that you know and expecting expecting that of other people while not wanting to do it Mm -hmm. myself and i think that that the end of the day it is it is not natural and no one can constantly yeah we're in kind of like an impossible situation and just doing our best i think yeah (laughs) uh to bring it back to kind of the activism stuff how do you balance the immediate needs and urgency because there's things that need to be addressed right now there are serious issues that we can't ignore we can't kind of push back and wait but I think that a lot of these huge societal changes, they are generational changes. Like I'm not a revolutionary. I don't think that tomorrow we're going to have a revolution and tear everything down and build it all up the next day. You don't? Probably not. I don't I I don't think that's <laughs> what happening. About the next day? I I mean in yeah. general, I'm just I'm not a revolutionary kind of person. And I've kind of like shifted back and forth in my political views over the years, but I know it's a dirty word, but I'm kind of an incrementalist, which a lot of people will say, "Oh, that's just you being you know, tolerant of racism and problems and um, you don't have any urgency about it. I'm like, that's, I don't think that's necessarily a fair assessment of how I feel, but I do think that all of these things that we need to fix, nothing happens overnight, nothing. So how do you balance the kind of idea of we need action now, we need results now. They don't make a request, they make demands, right? A protest, like we want Mm -hmm. this now. With the idea that we are naturally going to work slower and a lot of this work is generational nothing happens like all at once so how do you balance those kind of things of like we need the rest we need the patience we need the time but we also have this urgency how do you grapple with those two kind of like conflicting ways of getting change well you have to do both things so like i was saying you can't you have to spend as much time building the alternative you're asking for as you do 
saying I want an alternative because mm-hmm. what we see is that people will get what they want. And then it's like, then what? If we're like defund the police right now, do it right now. Okay. Are we really ready to do that right now? Like then what? Who's in charge of this? When that happens, what do we do? When there's domestic violence, where do they go? So we have to examine all of those systems and decide what is better. How are we going to do this? At least in my work, we talk a lot about what's going on in prison and how COVID is a really good argument for decarceration. But there are folks that will say, like, you can't set people up to fail. You can't take somebody out of a, out of a cage and just like be like, go, see mm-hmm. ya. You're free now when we know there's a housing crisis, you know, like we know they're not going to be able to find a place to live. We know they're not going to be able to find a job. So what can we do? What can we build so that when the things that we want happen, they're ready? You know, Mm -hmm. that's kind of the thing that is difficult, right? Like a good example of what we are close to doing is that we are close to doing it in food. So we have like, we don't want to use big box stores or processed food or something like that. Well, we're at least at the point where if you lived here and you have a certain amount of privilege, you could probably buy all of your meat and produce locally here. So now the next step is how do we make that available to everybody? You know, and that's like really, it's tangible. It's happening. It's possible. It can happen kind of overnight. I mean, you can build a garden in one Mm. season. It is possible. So now, now that we have those things built, like let's pretend there's enough food being grown in every neighborhood to feed everyone. So maybe that gives us an opportunity to build some shelter, some kind of like housing around those properties that need to be tended to. And somebody's got to tend to it. So then maybe there's a job. Maybe all of those people are people that we're letting out of jail and then they have a job to go into that Mm -hmm. or whatever, right? Then maybe because people have the food, they aren't stealing as much. Then maybe because they're not stealing as much, we need a little bit less police in that area. Then after we need a little bit less police, maybe the police don't need guns anymore. Then maybe after, you know, so it's like it Mm -hmm. happens and all of the systems feed into each other, but they just have, they can't have anything to do with that ladder, right? They have to be the complete opposite. And we have to be willing to have the idea. Mm-hmm. You see when people like win the lottery, like if they didn't have a plan for what they're going to do, like I know exactly what I would do if I were, you know, if I won the lottery, I know where I'm going first. I know what I'm doing. A lot of people are like, I don't know. Maybe I just get like a big pool and fill it with sharks. <laughs> like, and, then, and then they've spent all of their money. There's this difference between ideation and action around a lot of these things. And there's a lot of sloganeering. There's, we'll use defund the police as like a pretty good example of this. Um, what you brought up is that it's a good goal. It is, it has some coherence about what we want down the line, but it opens the conversation to all of this type of pushback of, well, what about the murderers and those kind of things? And there's not always a really solid answer for those things. So I think that you've, that's a good example that you're giving of kind of like, it's not a, we just do this one thing and that solves all the problem that it's part of a interconnected set of things that we need to be addressing sort at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is part of that like just a communication piece? Is it, do we, need to be more thoughtful about what language and slogans we use? Do we need to be better communicators about what the bigger picture is? Because that seems to be part of the challenge is that if the messaging is wrong, then did you just blow something up that could have been, you know, a viable strategy or tactic to, to bring more people on board? 
Right. I mean, I think that I learned a lot from reading bills and listening to bill hearings in the last session. Things such as like compromising the word is and or in certain bills could mean a completely different law. I think we should have started with abolish the carceral system and abolish the police because defunding is a little bit trickier. That still leaves room for policing Mm -hmm. and policing is inherently racist and classist. And it will never not be because that's how it came. That's why it's here, mm-hmm. right? We There was a time when we didn't have it. There are societies that don't have it and they do exist. It does exist. So that goes back to like also our, you know, our American brains are very like, this is the only place in the world and the <laughs> only option for how things can function because we're number mm-hmm. one. And I hope that by now we've all realized like maybe we're number yeah. 10. If, if <laughs> we're that. Not, we're, not, we're not going number yeah. one. Yeah. Exactly. So no, I don't think the messaging needs to change. I think that it needs to be explained better. People need to educate themselves about the thing in order to argue their point. It's fun to say, defund the police, you better be ready for all the things that people are going to say against mm-hmm. it. And I've gotten in the argument so many times or in the debate so many times, and I know exactly what's coming. I know by the conversation we've already had, where this person's going to stand mm-hmm. on it. And nine times out of 10, by the end, they're like, that totally makes sense. I wish that it were explained to me mm-hmm. like that. And I wish that too. And And I think that when it came up, we had the counter argument of, or like the counter culture of the make America great again, people. And that's like a positive message, you know? So Mm. it it was easy to be like those bad activists want to take away the good guys and we just want to make America great again. And like, that is smart. (laughs) (laughs) They are very smart. Like I will never say that, that the the Trump campaign was not brilliant. Like it was so smart. Mm. And I think that it's important that we, all just reckon with that and that they're and so organized white supremacy has such a homogenous group you know it's very easy to get along with everybody that looks like you and pretty much believes the same thing and worships the same god and eats the same food like what differences really are there Mm. with all of those folks so i think that the first thing we can do as like going back to communication is just and the first thing everyone can do that's not political and it's not activism i mean i guess it is and it and it's not revolutionary but it kind of is is like who are your neighbors Mm -hmm. do they have any health concerns do they have children i have new neighbors right now i need to introduce myself to i need to make you know if there's a neighbor that i'm like "Mm, i don't love them like i need to love them Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i need to get to know them and when we do that we are eliminating that need for for that like superficial conversation or that superficial connection, mm-hmm. right? The thing that everyone can do right now after they listen to this or whatever is like talk to someone on the street. And the same thing with like the unhoused community. You don't have to start a mutual aid group and serve food for everyone. You can just say good morning to that person that's sitting on the side of the road like you would anyone mm-hmm. else. You know, just humanizing everyone else and not being the main character of your story all the time is the thing that that will help promote the systems that we need to build. Yeah. Where do you think that starts? Because I've been thinking about this a little bit. I was not raised with a strong sense of volunteerism. That just was not part of, you know, me being a kid. There are families where, you know, they always go on Thanksgiving and, and serve food down at the shelter, those kind of things. But it wasn't a part of kind of my upbringing. And I think that it's a hard thing 
to learn or to kind of shift into as an adult. I try to be more aware of that now, but I do think that part of it is kind of in the earlier stages of our lives. So where we learn what community means, like how we relate to the people around us, who's in our in-group and out-group, that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously people can always change and we want to advocate for adults who are capable of making decisions to make good community-minded decisions. But is part of it just a, a broader cultural thing too? Like how do we mm-hmm. how do we introduce that as a normal part of life? That being part of your community is that's the default, not the, you know, that's not an exception. Yeah, I think I mean that starts with the education system. Like our education system is built on competition and individualism, right? Like right away we do a test to see where everybody's at, then we're competing for the A, then you want first chair, then you've got to be on the varsity team, and then you're like all we do is compete against each other from the first day of school on. Mm-hmm. This person has shoes that I like, you have light up shoes, I don't have light up shoes. That kind of stuff we just culturally do that here where um in a lot of indigenous communities and in tribal communities in Africa, they start by, you know, the circle is used way more than we, we stop using circle in like kindergarten. Like after, after kindergarten, we don't even sit in a circle mm. anymore. And there's a lot to be said about the way that people interact when they're standing in a circle versus when they're in rows and they can't see each other's facial expressions or how other people interact. And there's somebody that's up high and other people that are down low. Even those visual representations actually become internalized in us as people. Like somebody's up here and you always listen to the person who's up here because you're down here and you're better if you're up in the front than you are and you're bad if you're in the back. You know, so we set up those things through our education system. I think that's the most, um, the clearest example of why we don't have a community care. Somebody falls and all the kids laugh. The teacher doesn't have to make everyone stop laughing. It's just something that we're already programmed to do. Whereas in other societies that don't or don't educate the way that we do, they all stop and, and lift each other up, you know, and we see that, that kind of difference happen all the time. But I think, yeah, it definitely starts in with schooling and with the way that we, we parent our kids. And, you know, when, even when they're really small, teaching that empathy, um, with babies, you know, with other, with other kids and with other, with animals and all of that kind of stuff is just, it's a slow burn, but I think that, you know, reforming those kinds of things is like reforming our education system. I don't think anyone, no matter where you sit politically, is like, we're doing a great job with education right now. Let's do 400 more years of exactly this. There's no teacher that's like, yeah, this is good, mm-hmm. perfect. And there's no student who's like, mm-hmm, I'm perfectly supported and love school so right. much. And no parent who's like so impressed all the time, mm-hmm. you know? My kids' school, I I feel like it's close. They do a lot of team building. They do a lot of things like that. They do a lot of uncomfortable communication, a lot of getting up from the debt. Like there's no like rows or anything like that. All of those kinds of things, those practices are out. And there are studies on it. So using studies that already exist, that are practiced methods that work better, if we could do better at implementing those studies once doing them, then I think it would be a lot easier because a lot of the the answers are there to most of these problems. We just are so afraid of transitioning mm-hmm. or some it's in it for some, you know, somebody's in it for the wrong reason and they will do everything to make sure that that transition doesn't happen. Where there's room for everybody, even, even the worst of the worst, there is still 
hope and room for those, you know, for those folks and, and a need for them. Mm-hmm. Too. What do you, what's the best way you think to deal with the pushback or the opposition or the reactionary response to a lot of activist stuff? And sometimes using activist tools or strategy or language. I'm thinking about the truck convoy thing that's happening right now around the vaccine mandates in Canada. Basically, I hear, oh, a bunch of protesters blocked a freeway. I think, oh, was that a Black Lives Matter thing? Was that a response to police shooting? I've seen that before from Mm -hmm. activists. So it's an activist tactic, but it is geared towards the like complete opposite end of the political spectrum around something that is, you know, it's a public health issue, those kind of things. How do you what do you think Mm -hmm. the best way is to deal with people who are pushing back against the kind of progress that you want or adopting this, you know, you, like you said, the MAGA marketing was very, very strong. So what's the best way to basically deal with or address or communicate with the others, the people who are actively fighting Mm -hmm. against you? Like, how do you deal with that? Because that presents a real challenge to any kind of the things that you want to accomplish. Yeah. I mean, there's (laughs) my favorite method is shaming. (laughs) (laughs) Because it turns out that a lot of people that are very uncomfortable by realizing that perhaps they are not the brightest star in the sky have very large egos that are very affected by shaming. So usually that works. Another thing is those kinds of actions like dropping a banner or blocking the road, those work. They work a lot better than public commenting. I've done both. Mm-hmm. I promise you laying in the road is a, all done in a day's work. Whereas like I've done a lot of public comments with a very little amount <laughs> with a very little amount of um, success. So it's like both have to work together again. There's always something in common with everybody. There's always something in common. So like when we talk about like I would say the antithesis of me is like a cop. So like the first thing I do when I'm talking to a police officer is say, you know, I know you and I both are here because we care about our community. That's true. Whether or not I think that that person is helping or they think that I am helping doesn't matter. The great equalizer is none of us want to worsen the situation that brought us together right now. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is try to calmly tell you what it is that we want. And then hopefully you will calmly write me a ticket or whatever and move along about your day. But it's important to sometimes like, especially with policing, like make it very apparent that they're not necessary. So we had a situation where we didn't have a situation, but there was a situation um, and this happens commonly where There will be an anti-policing protest. Someone gets hurt and then they want to call the police. No, Mm -hmm. no, you don't get to do that. Right. So that kind of stuff is like, we have to check ourselves when we do those kinds of things. You can't say that this system doesn't need to exist and then lean on it the second that it's, that it's inconvenient for you to do something Mm -hmm. else. So I think, yes, making sure that you can start with the human point of both of you sitting there like why are you even sitting in the same place with the person that vehemently disagrees with you like there must be something already in common if you're sitting at a basketball game hey i know we both really like basketball Mm -hmm. and that we can agree with that and sometimes it's like conserving your energy sometimes i just don't 
out of an act of love to myself, I'm not going to continue engaging. I know that this person's not going to change their mind. Mm. And when somebody has decided they're not going to change their mind, they're not. And that's fine. Hopefully you can build something around them while they are doing whatever it is that they're doing that will catch them when inevitably the thing that they trust doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, I imagine that as a local activist, a fairly prominent person who is regarded as being very knowledgeable, you probably get asked a lot of questions and are expected to uh, to teach people things. And I've heard this concern a lot of maybe not your job, maybe not your responsibility, maybe mm-hmm. too much to ask people of color to be the constant educator of white people. But I also wonder who else can do it sometimes um, because there's also this pushback of like, listen to black creators, listen to the people who have the experience. How do you kind of balance that as well? Do you find it frustrating or challenging or even offensive for people to assume that you're there to, to teach them things? Or do you think that that is part of the work that you need to do to get things done? What's your thoughts on that? I, by nature, love to teach things. I was a teacher for a very long time. I've taught many different things. I like to teach anyway. So I don't really mind that much as long as I have the energy for it. And I think that the person is going to go and do the thing. Mm. If I'm like, I think that you should listen to these interviews or read this book or whatever, and then we'll be able to get on the same page there. And then after that, let's have another conversation. And then we can talk about the next level of education. And that's only because I, as a person who was went through the same school system that most of my white friends went through, had to re-educate myself. Also, I know that it's possible because I had to do it because I am also not taught black history. They don't take us to the side and like, <laughs> Hey, here's the rest. You know, like, We have to go and do the same thing too. And it's the same thing with like, you know, your um, internalized misogyny, your internalized white supremacy. That doesn't, it's never like, oh, I'm done. I know it all now. I am a perfectly decolonized, anti-racist and um, rainbow person. You know, (laughs) it's just, it is never over. There's always, um, there's always work to do. And I think the more that you do it, the more your shame and your embarrassment for not knowing the thing becomes a, a curiosity and seeking out of, of information that makes you feel good about the things that you're standing behind, right? Like eventually you start to feel good. You feel really bad for a very long time though. I'm never, I will never say that you (laughs) won't feel bad when you decide to like take this journey. It is hard. At the same time, there is nothing you can't find on the internet or in a library. So when you're asking someone to tell you something that they can read in a book, yeah, that's, you know, there are books by, you know, black teachers that want to teach mm-hmm. you that exact thing. So there is a lot to be said for like the level of respect somebody has for you when you know that they could just look it up. But then it's like the the way that you value the relationship that matters. And I, I don't think that I'm particularly wonderful about navigating it with people that are closer to me versus people that are not as close to me. When you're closer to me, I'm like assuming that you did the homework. And when you didn't do the homework, I'm pissed. Mm-hmm. But like, if you're not as close to me, I'm like, huh, that's okay. I'll have compassion for this person. And like, maybe I'll 
ease them on down the road. But that's like a per, you know, that's my thing I need to work on then. Do not ask people for unsolicited advice or historical things. If you haven't truly looked something up or like didn't get stuck in something, because there's, it's different to be like, hey, I'm reading this book by this person. And they said this, I don't really get that. Are you familiar with that book? Yes. Oh, cool. What do they mean by this? Is there any, like, what are your thoughts on that? That's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, then we're, then we're engaging just in a conversation. I'm not teaching anyone anything. I'm just saying my, my experience. So come to the table with something. Hey, I've researched this or Hey, this terminology doesn't make sense, which is very like, very much like the first conversation we had where I'm like, Oh, I can tell you've like read anything about this. You're not just going to ask me a bunch of these questions that have answers mm-hmm. already. So I'm totally willing to do this interview because I know that these questions are coming from a stance of curiosity and not like what about ism right. or whatever, you know? Yeah. Well, let's talk about some local stuff too. I've been seeing on Instagram lately, there's, I guess, a fundraiser right now for Hampton House, which is a garden, which is, yeah. that's a project of yours. I don't, I know very little about it except that it's a garden. So can you tell me a little bit about what Hampton House is and kind of how it ties into this concept of mutual aid and, um, and just what it's about? Sure. Mutual aid is, it's an organizational theory that you have reciprocated exchanges with people, right? With, for nothing, just mutual benefit. I grow the tomato, you eat the tomato, you are fed, I am fed, you tell somebody else about the tomatoes, right? It's very simple and how everything should work pretty much. The mutual aid garden happened from a huge act of mutual aid, which is um, my landlord. So my landlord what is um, a white man and with the, an amount of privilege that not a lot of um, white men in, of our age or like mid thirties have. Um, and one of those things was um, the property where I live in the backyard and they didn't want to live here anymore and really wanted to do like they wanted to do the work, but they didn't want it to be so laborious, you know, like he wanted to do something big, but not a day in and day out thing. Right. Which is very understandable. And so we talked and he was like, you know, I just really, I want you to be able to keep doing what you're doing in a way that is not stressful and that you can keep giving back or whatever we're moving how do you feel about living here? And I'm like, great, awesome. Can I turn this whole thing into a garden? He's like, do whatever. So now we're at this great point where it's like, not only is this person not a landlord, like this person is a champion of this community effort. So then now that we we have the space, then I reached out to two of my favorite farmers, which are um, Wendy from Girl Farm and Megan and Lindsay, actually three of them, Megan and Lindsay from Reno Food Systems. And just said like, hey, I like, I've done small gardens a lot of times. Like I really love plants. I like to grow stuff, especially food. Most of the time where I've lived, there hasn't been really like a good space to do it, or I haven't really had the time. But now because I'm afforded this, you know, this generous scenario, I can really pour myself into something that brings me joy. And like, if I have joy, then I can do more fighting Mm -hmm. (laughs) without deteriorating myself at a rapid rate. Because that is another thing that we talk about in like our uncomfortable activist conversations is like, we are killing ourselves very fast. Like this is really terrible for us. We're not sleeping it right. We're not eating right. Especially like when you're in the middle of like a protest situation, we're probably drinking too much. 
it's stressful. Mm -hmm. And there aren't a lot of healthy ways to experience joy when you're in this like constant battle mode or this flight or flight mode. So we started this garden and it's been ever since it started just this source of joy for not only myself, but other folks in the neighborhood or other other Black folks, other Indigenous people. And it was really important to me that it was aimed toward Black food sovereignty and justice because historically, Black farmers have been disenfranchised at a rate that was is horrific in that. And I found out about most of this stuff through the National Black Food Justice Association, I believe is what it's called. And they had a panel that the assemblywoman I worked for was invited to, but she had a conflicting meeting. So I asked to join it. And like after that panel, I was like, oh my God, I'm going all the way in. Like this is going to be this huge project. I'm very enthusiastic about huge projects. I'm overly ambitious and I love to prove people wrong on all of those overly ambitious things they usually do. Like nothing brings me greater joy than taking on way too much and accomplishing mm. it. <laughs> so, which I don't recommend, but it works for me. So, because like the reward is always way better than the risk. So that's kind of what happened. And it ended up just like, we were producing so much food that I was just like leaving bags on the porch. Like, please just <laughs> come get this food. And it was funny, like how much people wanted to pay for it when it just wasn't necessary. There's just no reason. Like we could do a one one and done fundraiser kind of thing to get some of the materials that we need. But the point is that we can all feed each other by using these kinds of things. Seeds replace themselves and they're donated and all of that stuff. And it's it comes together really easily. Not to mention, it is such a healing thing to do. Like now if I'm having a really difficult conversation or meeting or whatever, I can go out and like do it while I'm pulling weeds. And suddenly I'm just a little bit more in my body mm. and I'm more connected and I'm just a little bit more clear-minded. And so I started inviting like other people that I knew were you know, doing this like organizers and activists and I know are, we're feeling the same way. I'm like, Hey, why don't you come out and like turn some compost with me? You know, I know it sounds weird, but like, I think you're going to like it. And, and now it's almost like that's all of the people that come. <laughs> it's like all like, there's like people from plan and people from faith and action and people from Planned Parenthood and people on different political campaigns, people that are running for office. And that was like last week was the, or the week before last, like that was the, the group there was, but then sometimes it'll be a group of like, just like black families. And then sometimes it'll be like white families or sometimes it'll just be my neighbors. Sometimes it's just myself. And the thing is that it's a space where it's okay if you don't come. It's okay if you do. It's okay if you take a load off and pick one tomato. It's okay if you go all the way in and do all the things. And I think it just kind of allows us that slow communication. Mm -hmm. We're able to slowly get to know each other. We are tangibly building something like the alternative to a system that is damaging to us. And we're getting to know each other through doing that work. And that's what building a community is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure it helps like you use the word tangible. I think the the idea that it is something real that you can see that you can mm -hmm. feel really matters for a lot of people that are trying to make a difference or trying to do something, you know, to go back to a little bit of our earlier conversation, we live in a world where that doesn't exist as much nowadays, like our entire lives are on right. a screen and like tapping with our fingers and our bodies are made to right. do things. So it sounds like it kind of ties exactly. into a very kind of natural way of of being that spills over into the way that we communicate and the way that we get things done. Right. It gives everyone like a not just tangible, but it gives everyone a job, mm. you know, where they feel like they're part of it. Like no longer is it like, oh, it's your job to do the garden. It's like, no, it's our thing that we can do. Then it becomes like when we're in 
a more full season, people will be like, oh, is it okay if I stop by at this time or this time? I'm like, it's yours too, man. Just go back there and get whatever you need. Like, it's yeah. fine. You know, it's not a, is it okay if I come by and get some peppers? Yes, go do it. You know where they are, you know? And then they become a part of something. And when you're a part, when you have a purpose and you're a part of something, then you can see that alternative. Like, you're not going to the grocery store and stocking shelves and then feeling really good about it when you pay for your groceries at the end of the day. You're never going to get that mm. in, in in that kind of scenario. Yeah. What is the activist culture like in Reno? So I'm curious as someone who's not, uh, I, you know, I pay attention to some of it, but I'm not necessarily fully invested or part of the activist community here. So I see it from the outsider's perspective. I know that we have some successful, consistent mutual aid type groups that are doing a lot of work, getting resources to the unhoused population, stuff like that. I see that as a good thing. We have some activist-friendly media and outlets. I think like Our Town Reno does a lot of good coverage. This is Reno also covers a lot of these issues that maybe we're not seeing covered by the RDJ or on the TV news. Mm -hmm. So it feels like there's some active groups that are doing well. There's some positive press and communication piece. There's consistent public comment. I know you mentioned public comment. It's not just you. There are people that are actively speaking at city council all the time, whether they're receptive or not to that. I think you can probably address too. But generally, what's the uh, what's like the activist life like in a city like Reno? Do you feel like there's a lot of people involved? Do you think it's easy to get involved? Uh, is there a strong sense yeah, of community? I think it's yeah. What's it like? Strong sense of community for sure. Very strong sense of community in a way that I have not experienced it before. Um, I've always been like a part of the art community, not the same. Mm. <laughs> And that's still by nature in the way that we interact in this country. That is just a competitive community. It just is. And it still is. There's a lot of pettiness and whatever. However, those things exist together. And with education, you realize that like the activists of the 70s and the artists of the 70s were the same people, <laughs> you know? And so once once we figure that out, then we're really cooking and we're getting there for sure. There's been lots of, you know, like Joe Rock has gotten involved in a lot of things and there's such a great space for those communities to collaborate. But I think it's super easy to get involved and super easy to be in it. And it feels really good because it's rooted in collective care instead of just like your individual interest or anything like that. Like it is all of our best interest to take care of each other. And I think that, we need more people all the time. And that's the thing that's, that's difficult is that people will burn out because there's not enough folks. So like too much will be, you'll take on too much or whatever, and that's fine. But what needs to happen when somebody needs to rest is that someone else needs to come in. And I think that that's happening and like that fluctuation is occurring, but it's, you know, we're all learning and we all don't know. We just know that, that this thing that's happening right now is fixable like uh, this this idea that like people who live outside should not be seen in society is wrong like the answer to fixing the unhoused population is housing that's the only answer it will never be a shelter it will never be jail it will always be housing the only difference between being unsheltered and being sheltered is shelter Mm -hmm. That's why we try not to say homeless because they have a home. Reno is their home. They have mm-hmm. a home. They need shelter. That's different. Getting involved in any way is good. And then it kind of just snowballs from there. I know who's like 
always down. And then I, you know, communicate with every single day. There are folks that I would talk about with this work every single day. And then there are folks that I'm like, okay, there's something coming up. Like we should all collaborate on this fundraiser or on whatever, which also kind of sucks. It's like, we don't want to do fundraisers. We want it just to exist, mm. but it doesn't because we still have money. You know, right. <laughs> things still have to, they still cost money. Apparently I cannot trade vegetables at Lowe's <laughs> to get the tools that I need to grow the vegetables yet. Got it. You mentioned research, reading books, like informing ourselves. Just kind of to close out, how would you recommend that people learn about these kind of ideas that you have, about how we can build community? For people who want to get involved, obviously they can connect with you and they can you know, participate. Yeah. But a lot of people, I think maybe... Again, everyone's on a different kind of stage in their, you know, journey of learning on these things and being involved in things. So can you recommend maybe books or podcasts or, or Instagram accounts or, or where would you recommend yes. that people yeah. like go go to learn? If you want to send people to just learn some stuff, what's a couple resources? Yeah, you know, my favorite Instagram account for this is the woke scientist. She is super mm-hmm. awesome. She's we've talked about her yeah. before. She's been Uh, you know, an epidemiologist, but also a psychologist and also an abolitionist. Like what a freaking awesome person and resource. And that person wants to teach you, you know, like that person wants to, and they do it so well. So I think that that is a great place. If you want to just like do it through social media, I would go start there. I also love the nap ministry. Um, It also couples really nicely with that. Two books that I'm reading right now that are on my desk, so I'm going to show them because they're so beautiful. This one is like life-changing. It's The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love by Sonia Renee Taylor, who's awesome. She's on a Brene Brown podcast that my friend Natalie introduced me to, and then I was like, I have to have that book right now. And I've been reading it. I really love it. And then this other one that's really new that I think will like tie in things nicely is called abolition feminism now. And it's, a, it's written by three people by Angela Davis, Gina Dent and um, Erica Miners and Beth Ritchie. So four, four women. And I think that that is a really, really great place to start. And then also there's a lot of like anti-racist libraries. So that's really helpful. And then when you talk about things like, decarceration or whatever there's another one is it right here (laughs) this one is really good it's a stories from solitary confinement six by ten and that's by taylor pendergrass and it is really good also it's a deep deep read um another one that i really like i like a lot of like the baldwin texts or like those kind of older folks because they went through it already so there's one like if you are if you are an activist already or somebody um, that's like already kind of a little bit schooled in, in movement work and tired, there's one um, by James Baldwin called Begin Again. That's really good that I really love. Just there are so many. There's so many books. <laughs> so many books that I love. But those those are all really good. There's one called What About the Rapists that I think is kind of a good one for the conversation that we had, you know, where it's like, Sure, that works if everyone's on their best behavior, but you can't possibly mean that like rapists get to be free or whatever. So that's a really good one too that kind of breaks apart what it really means to to have this alternative society. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Das Capital. <laughs> <laughs> Start there. Mm-hmm. 
Excellent. Well, um, how can people get involved locally? So I mean, those are great resources. I'll link all of those in the show notes and everything so people can check them out. And I'm excited to, I've actually wanted to get that Angela Davis and the other authors of the book. Oh yeah. Uh, I saw you post about it recently. Good so far. Um, so I'll post links to those, but what about locally? How can people get involved? Where can they find you on social media? Is that a good place for them to kind of see what you're doing? Um, what are some kind of local ways to plug into what's going on? Yeah, um, I think right now it's it's awesome to get involved with a more substantial group too that has you know more more structure when it comes to all of the different issues. If you're really new and you don't know what to do, like you know, the volunteer for a plan or ACLU or something like that, because we will have specific campaigns that are well thought out and all of these things. If you just want to like hit the ground running, um, yeah, my social is on Instagram. I'm Find Art in Life. Um, and then on Facebook, it's just Lily Barron. And then I really like Reno Hearts You's Instagram page is really great because it will, it will bring you to all sorts of different people. Like I'll, I will tag Reno Hearts You and, and a myriad of different things going on and they're good about mm-hmm. sharing it, which I love. Um, and that's a, that's a grassroots, really grassroots, um, group um mass liberation is great too there's not as much movement up here with that but there will be and also there's just so much right now like because we are in this weird time where we have virtual meetings and non-virtual meetings like you can tap into a lot of these groups and a lot of people's talks make it work nevada uh one of the people there quentin savoir who's a great asset um to this conversation they're down in vegas but he has a really great podcast called make it make sense he does a lot of like reimagining whatever reimagining housing reimagining like all of these other systems and does a really good job about that go to also um if you want any of those books go to sundance to get those books Mm -hmm. (laughs) they have them i was really surprised it's like i'm not gonna buy an abolition book from freaking amazon like i'm gonna go and like sure enough they had three copies of it so like you know go to your local local bookstores to do Mm -hmm. it read some stuff the holland project is really great at bumping um different events and everything like that i'm trying to think if there's anyone else that i'm missing oh yes the water protector people so numu wanderer on instagram is also great they do all of the um trekkie river cleanups and it is indigenous led and very very important work that ties into um, a lot of this economic justice work also work where environmental and economic justice live together in these river cleanups in this really beautiful way. Yeah. Excellent. Those are, those are some of my things. Awesome. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of good work here in Reno. So it's good to be able to highlight those and kind of bring a little bit more attention to them. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about all this stuff. Like I said, thank you. I've really wanted to have uh, again, like, I I follow from the outside a lot of what is happening in the activist community. And I wanted to make sure that on my show, I'm not just talking about the activist community or about these issues without including people who are actively doing the kind of work. And I think you're the, you're the, yeah. like the perfect guest for this kind of topic because at, at least I get you. the sense that you're very plugged in on what's going on. So thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, come on and explain it and you know, answer some of the like, hey, I don't know anything about this stuff questions, because I think a lot of people are coming from that same place of like, I've heard of this word or this ideology or this thing, and I don't really know what it means. So being Mm -hmm. able to ask those questions and, and learn a lot, I think is really helpful. So hopefully this conversation helps some people to, uh, you know, to have a better sense of what these things mean and why they matter. I hope so. 
Yeah, and reach out. And again, like, just it's important for people that have the knowledge to not gatekeep it and find a compassionate way to either say, I don't have the bandwidth to explain this, but I recommend this or that, or take a minute to appreciate that, like, there is somebody else that could could be helping mm-hmm. if they were given this this information, you know, so it's on it's on all of us. And also the people asking for the for the help, like, know what know what the ask is. What is the thing exactly that you that you want to know more mm-hmm. about? Perfect. Well, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah, that was really fun. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of Renoites and special thanks to my guest, Lily Barron. What a great conversation. I was so glad to be able to sit down with her and learn a lot about activism, what works, what doesn't, what it looks like and feels like here in Reno. Really great conversation, and I am very grateful that she took the time to chat. If you enjoyed this episode or any other, please do me a favor and spread the word. Let people know about this show. It is a lot of fun for me. I get to have a lot of great conversations, and my hope is that I can share them with as many people as possible. So if you know anyone who listens to podcasts, be sure to ask them, hey, do you listen to Renoites? Hey, did you check out this week's episode of the show? Let people know about it. Spread the word. Share the posts on social media, all that fun stuff. Also, if you have time to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, that helps people find the show, and I really appreciate it. That's all I've got for you this week. Hope to see you on March 10th at the Brewer's Cabinet, and... See you next week.